Hi, I'm Jen Drummond. Welcome to Seek Your Summit. As a mom, a business owner, and the first female to climb the seven second summits, I realize that the mountains we climb are a part of our success. And it is up to us to go beyond that success into a life of significance. Listen in as I share personal stories and interview others who have led a life of both success and significance, and now they are paying it forward. Today, I have Todd Wylevin on the podcast. He talks the entire time because he was part of the rescue efforts at the shooting in Vegas in 2017, where 58 people lost their lives. This episode, I like teared up almost the entire time listening to this human do unbelievable heroic things just because he was called to. So listen in, be inspired, be reminded that we are all individuals, but united together, we're capable of so much more. And when we take care of one another, we all end up better. So enjoy. Hey, friends, today we have Todd Blylevin with us. Todd, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I'm honored. Oh, I'm so excited. I heard your story, I think, from my friend Steve, and I was like, yes, I need to talk to this human. He is a superhero in real life, so so exciting to meet you and talk to you today. Oh, thank you. I, I like your story as well. You have done some amazing things, and uh, again, I'm just inspired to be here and uh, share my story. Yeah. You know, it's interesting when tragic events happen, we have a way that we like to think we'd show up in a way that we'd like to think that we would handle the circumstances. But then when you're actually in them and then see what you do, like I almost felt like when I was in a crazy circumstance, I was watching myself do the things I was doing versus making the conscious decision of what I was doing. Eventually, my conscious decision caught up, but it was my subconscious that was definitely leading the way for a little bit. So you were a survivor in the Las Vegas mass shooting. Talk to us a little bit about this back in 2017. Yeah, so uh, I was there with, you know, my wife, uh, about 18 others, uh, family, friends, you know, younger uh, kids. I, I call them kids, but, you know, in their early 20s uh, that yeah. we had gone to Vegas and I think celebrated their 21st birthday with a lot of them. So we were the aunt and uncle that, you know, we were the cool people that they got to hang out with. And uh, it was a venue that we had been to several times, uh, you know, over the past several years. Um, it was a place where we felt safe. It yeah. was a venue that we all enjoyed and could really cut loose. And going to Vegas was, that's what it was all about for us. You know, uh, we, I worked a lot. Uh, my wife and I, you know, we had uh, every other, you know, kind of marital struggle problems that people have. Um, so going to Las Vegas, especially being inside a country venue, which I love, and listening to country music, um, was really just an amazing getaway. And so it's a three-day country fest. Uh, okay. The first two nights... Um, you know, we're just amazing, hanging out with friends. And then the third night uh, was obviously when things really went south. So typically, um, we're always generally on the right-hand side of the stage. Okay. And then you have the casinos up on the right-hand side to your right, and then casinos behind you. 
and you have the stage in front of you to the left, okay? okay? So most of the time when that last performer of the night, which is usually the headliner, yeah, uh, starts to sing, or prior to that, all the girls in our group go up to the front row, you know, up against the rail, and us guys stand back about 10 feet from them and hang out, have our drinks, and just get a chance to watch the performer. I don't know how they did it, but every performer they were able to get up front this particular show with uh, Jason Aldean was on the stage and we decided to stay back because we just all 18 of us were together and we were dancing and just having a great time. So we opted to just kind of stay put, which put us about 25 to 40 feet away from the stage. Okay. Which was still a, a pretty close area of proximity of where we were at uh, in terms of when the shooting started. Um, and where the first uh, rounds were hit. But, um, you know, we were there. So there you are, and you're just dancing and having a great time. And these kids are floating around, and they're videoing us, and everything just is so magical that all of a sudden, in between songs, you hear popping sounds, not really sure what they are. Right. Around, you feel safe, though, that there's three or four officers standing over to the right, three as a matter of fact, and uh, nobody, there's no movement, and the singer is still singing. Second round uh, uh, begin, or the first round of machine gun fire begins. You're thinking automatically it's a drive-by. Uh, there's no way it could be inside the venue. Right. Uh, you're looking around. Everybody's like on this kind of heightened alert, but you're okay. And then the screams started and then the second round started and the singer now is running off the stage. The lights go out, the police officers are gone and now people are getting hit with bullets to your right, to your left and in front of you. And, you know, at that moment, all you can try to do is tell everybody to get down. Um, you get down to the ground, there you have your wife, you know, a few inches from you and you got this, your whole family around you. Everybody's on the ground in a concert where literally we were just having so much fun and people are dying to your left and right and in front. And uh, I was able to recognize that there was a muzzle flash coming from uh, an elevated um, location at Mandalay Bay. And so I thought, well, we're in, there's no coverage here. So we need to get up and we need to run. So I told everybody, get up, we're going to run. And we start to run towards a beer booth, uh, which was down about a 30 to 40 yard run, but it was metal. And it was the only place that I felt where we could actually get coverage. We had no clue if this was a single shooter uh, army that came in. We had no clue. And, uh, you know, it it was um, when you're, I try to kind of, paint this picture because it's um, when you're running for your life and you don't know what's behind you and you have the speed of bullets that are whizzing by you as you're running and people are getting hit, you don't know if that boot's going to touch down or not. And for me, all I wanted to do was try to run as big as I could. I'm a big guy Mm -hmm. and protect my wife and get her out. Mm -hmm. That was my main goal in the beginning, get her out and back to my children. And if I fall, then I fall, but get her out. And uh, 
And I was able to do that. We got to a beer booth. Um, thank God. Uh, I recognized there was an opening. There was a squad car there probably for traffic control after the event was over. Uh, we, we sat for like two seconds at this beer booth. We jumped up, told everybody to get over to the squad car. We got to the squad car there for about three seconds, told everybody to get up because we're going to run down uh, the street even further away from the gunfire towards more squad cars, thinking more safety. As soon as that happened, uh, I saw a gentleman carrying a woman out at that same time, like a pair of scissors. Mm -hmm. And I ran over to him super fast, grabbed her wrist and her boot. We got about five feet or less, and uh, we set her down. And unfortunately, at that moment, she was gone. Mm -hmm. And so that was the that was the first of you know the real touch and. At that point, I knew there was going to be mass casualties, mass chaos, what was going on. I had strength under me. My arms worked. My legs worked. I ran to my wife, told her I need to go back in. I gave her a kiss. I had sent her off with my brother-in-law and his wife, and I watched them run, and I turned around and ran back in. Um, do you think that was a conscious choice, or do you think it was made for you? I think I was given a choice in that moment. Um, I, I was out. I, you know, my job and my responsibility was to take care of my wife and get her home. But something inside of me told me, you, you can't. You're never going to live with yourself if you run. And I needed to go back regardless if I fell that night. If I ran 10 feet and got hit, I needed to be able to do that for anybody that was that needed help inside. And uh, I honestly, I'm a big faith believer. And I think that this was God's opportunity for me to uh, say yes, and believe in, in him. And he used me as a vehicle amongst many other people that uh, went back in like I did to help others. And uh, I was, I was in the right spot at the right time, basically. And so when I went in, with the right you know, attitude, I, I, right I was, spot, right time, right attitude, right attitude, exactly. Yeah. And I think, you know, I wasn't trained for this. I I wasn't a first responder. I didn't go through uh, medical training or anything else. Um, but I have compassion, and I have I have a heart, and I'm a father, and I know that. There's young kids that were dancing all around us. I needed to get in and make sure everybody's okay. And um, so I, I came up on a woman, uh, an, a, an older woman. She had been hit. I picked her up right away and ran her uh, within seconds to the squad car. Figured that was going to be my spot. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to run in, grab, try to get out as quickly as possible, and bring them to this spot. As soon as I got back up and I run in, here comes about 20 people, and in this mix of 20 people running out, a blonde-haired, foot one ish two-ish nurse comes out, grabs me up on my side as I'm going in. She says, I'm an ER trauma nurse. What can I do to help? I said, ma'am, there's three, three women down here. I think a security officer has been hit. You need to put your hands on them. I'm going back in. This woman, this is where all the inspiration comes in, right? Like, why do you keep why'd your boots keep moving forward? It's because of people like her that she ended up putting together three trauma centers or uh, triage centers across Giles Street, which is the street we were on. 
saving probably hundreds of lives and directing multiple people that came back, off-duty first responders, EMT, on where they need to go and, and help keep people alive. And so in that like first minute, I get confronted with this hero and she goes off and does her thing. I go in, I get confronted with another hero because I'm crying out for a medic, an EMT. There was a woman that had been shot a couple times. And this woman comes out of hiding, comes with me, shooting's going on behind us. And she ducks into me and I take her to this woman. And now here's another inspiring just hero that came out of her safety spot to help another person. She had no clue who that was. So you know, the uplift that you feel in that moment, you're scared to death. I don't want to die. I, I had no wish or didn't want to. I have kids at home and I wanted to get back to them, but uh, I felt an obligation. So I, I did that several times. I went in, grabbed people, brought them out. Uh, you know, I unfortunately at one point, uh, got, the gunfire was still going on. And uh, the story, I was a little kind of confused on on where I was at that given moment when I approached these three women, two of them were dragging their friend out. And I got them to tell me what they saw me do, because I ended up meeting two of them. And their account was that I came around the corner, which hap which must have been the third or fourth person that I had had physical contact with. So it was early in the shooting. Um, still, and I had, there were two bodies down. I had come up on them. I had checked for pulses and I looked up and I saw them dragging their friend out. Mm -hmm. And so I ran to them immediately. We picked up their friend. I threw her over my shoulder and I ran her out as quickly as, as possible. They followed me. By that time, uh, some cars were already starting to pull up because there was a parking lot there. So yeah. people were using their cars as taxis to help get victims to hospitals. And I threw her and the two girls got in the back seat and I was able to get them out and to the hospital. I didn't know this at the time, but found out later that she ended up passing away uh, in the hospital. And, Jeez. you know, um, that was, that was really hard. The aftermath of learning more about, the people that you had touched and helped. And there was a lot that I, that I'd gotten out. And then there were some that, you know, that didn't make it. And, uh, I ran in probably about the fifth, sixth time, picked up a young female, uh, that was down and, uh, just about lifeless. And I started to carry her out and got her to, I just wanted to get her to the street. There were people now coming out of hiding. So each time I went in, more people started coming out and were yeah. helping others, right? The, yeah. But the street just started to grow in terms of Support. injured bodies, more people. For every one person down, there were four or five on top of them, which was, again, inspiring and amazing that people were uh, performing those kind acts. But I got this, I got this young woman out and... Uh, You know, I mean, it still hits, but you, I, I got her out and um, I was down on one knee and, you know, she took her last breath. 
Mm. And the innocence of it, right? Like this wasn't supposed to happen to her, but it did. And I was there. And a gentleman came up and, you know, he was uh, maybe an EMT or somebody uh, off duty, but he, you know, checks her pulse and he says, sir, she's gone. I said, I know. I, I don't know who she is. So I laid her down with, you know, gently stood back up and there I am, I'm looking at her and I'm looking at my boots and I'm just praying to God to just keep me moving. Just give me the strength, just keep me moving forward. And uh, so I got my boots moving again and it was one after another, um, nonstop. And, you know, at one point um, there was a, I I brought someone out and I think her, she was going to be okay. And I got up and there was an EMT standing there and he says, where are we going next? And I said, well, who are you? And he says, brother, we're, we've been with you. You're carrying them out. We're fixing them up. And I'm like, okay. I didn't even know these guys were there. It was a fire captain from San Francisco, um, an EMT off duty from Vegas. And then I think the third gentleman was a Marine or, or retired or former Marine. Uh, I don't know if there's a former Marine, but he was non-active. And so, uh, the four of us were a team. We kept going in and out, uh, bringing out as many people as we could. At this time, the shooting had stopped. You still thought you were under attack, though. Well, yeah. I mean, it's like, I, yeah, you think, you hope it stopped. You haven't heard anything in a while, but that doesn't mean there's not another one coming, right? And everything from Hollywood to watching the Twin Towers get hit. One yep. goes and you think it's a replay and it's another one coming. So, yeah, That's I right. can't even imagine the mental strength that it needed to block that and just do. Well, I had, uh, this was right, there was some political stuff going on at the time with another country. So people were talking about, could this be this particular country that came into Vegas and was trying to, you know, create mass chaos. I had three contact points that were law enforcement, one in Secret Service, the other one in FBI Terrorist Task Force, and the other friend at LAPD Metro. All three were giving me reports all three reports were different. Oh, wow. And it just tells you that how confusing it really was when you have 26,000 people that were at this event, 850 were injured. 850 were injured. Were injured. 58 lost their lives. And when people were hit, they were running down as far as halfway down the strip and going into casinos. So now imagine you being in a casino playing slots. And now here comes three or four people that are bloodied up running in. You're thinking, Oh my God, there's a shooting inside that casino. So police were scattered everywhere. Bomb threat at Luxor, all these different things were happening all in that moment. Um, For me on the grounds, uh, you know, we tried, I think we, we got as many as we could out in that moment. Then one of the EMTs said, Hey, uh, we just heard that there's, uh, 150 people behind Tropicana getting loaded up into ambulances. We're going to run over there and see if we can help. So I said, I'm going with you. So we run over behind Tropicana and now there's ambulances coming up like Uber line, right? Yep. So we start getting people into the ambulances. Police officer pulls up. I'm on the phone with my wife at this time, like just making sure she's okay. Yep. And what happened with her is she ended up running her and my brother-in-law and his wife and my wife were in between two cars 
And my brother-in-law had stolen or taken a, a street sign, a construction sign, and put it on top so they could sit under there in case, God forbid, a bullet were to come down, thinking that would be some sort of shelter. And they were in this like condominium place, and this angel of a man comes out and says, I have room in my condo, let's go. And he takes 26 people into his condo. It was him and two or possibly three other individuals. They barricaded the, the place down and protected those 26 individuals in their condo. So total angels. I would love to meet them one day and shake their hand for saving so many lives um, because everybody thought you're under attack, like I said. So right, right. Uh, these these four individuals were ready to give their lives up for these other people. And uh, one of them was my wife. And so there I am, I'm on the phone and a police officer pulls up and says, there's an active shooter on the roof. We need to get everybody inside. So now my wife is like, what? I said, I, I'll be okay. I hung up. Now we're, we're taking everybody inside into these corridors into the service area of Tropicana. Okay. And now, oh my God, there's another shooter somewhere. So right. the way that the service entrance goes is this long tunnel that goes under the, under the hotel, into these ballroom areas, but there's two corridors that run left and right. We needed to clear those out to make sure that there was nobody coming in on either side because we're sitting ducks. So right. there I am with this team of guys, and I'm barreling through these refrigerator doors, uh, laundry mat doors, all service stuff, and I'm hitting these doors, and they're bursting open, and there's 20 people stacked up hiding in the corner of these rooms, right? So mm -hmm. we're finding these people um, that literally ran into the back end, into these closets, and we're hiding and getting them out. Well, one of the females that was in there was part of my original 18. Oh, wow. Group. So she had been either grazed by a bullet or something cut her knee open pretty bad. And she comes out, screams my name, jumps on me, scared to death. Uh, so I, I was able to get her, which was a, a miracle. And then I bring her down to where there was a makeshift triage center being created because there were injured people there. One had deceased in that moment. Um, and I wanted to get her on one of those ambulances. So they were right. running people out in waves, uh, getting people into the ambulances and taking off uh, under armed security outside. And she wouldn't go. And uh, I, I told I said, her name. And I said, um, you need to go because I can't keep doing what I'm doing if I'm You're protecting here. you. Yeah. And all of a sudden, and I don't know where she came from, but all of a sudden this little elderly woman came out of nowhere, put a little white coat over her and said, I've got her. Come on, honey, you can come with me. And she took her out that door and she got on that ambulance I don't know where this woman came from. Never saw her again. As soon as that happened, there was a cry out that there was a man at the other end of the hallway down at the end of the tunnel waving a knife around. Oh, so geez. right away, you jump up, and now these three guys are following me, and I'm coming up on this guy with a knife. And so I'm screaming at him, good guy, bad guy, catches attention. He's up here with a knife, grab his wrist, disarm him basically stop him. He was just a scared individual. I don't think he yeah. meant to do it. Just 
you know, just kind of out of his mind and like everyone else. Um, that's when it started to somewhat calm down. Uh, it was probably another hour or so, hour and a half. They herded everybody into the ballroom uh, just to kind of get people into one central location. Of course, you're still thinking, well, what if someone comes in? We have no, there's no police. Uh, police are on the perimeter, that, but we can't see them. So if someone comes in, we're sitting ducks. So now all these guys and myself are profiling everybody, looking for anybody that's out of the ordinary, right? Right. Which is, you're in Vegas. Right. So everything's out of the ordinary. Everything's <laughs> like, out of the ordinary. Like yeah. spandex on males in super costumes are the norm. So I'm sorry. Like how that's do you right. even pick out somebody out of place? Yeah, yeah. There's no, it, it, you're just doing what you can. And um, yeah. uh, so at the end of it, you know, two SWAT officers ended up coming in. Uh, walked right up to me, um, told me I could stand down. One of them put his hand on my shoulder. Um, obviously, I had a lot of stuff on my left side. That's where I was carrying a lot of the victims. So I was pretty bloody on my left. Um, and uh, when he put his hand on my my shoulder, you know, I could just look at him. We just locked in, like, just the devastation that had happened. He couldn't believe what was going on. And he's looking at me, and I I'm just, it just broke down. Yeah. So I, I'm at my knees. Um, uh, the uplift in that moment was all the people that came up to me and just started lifting me up mm-hmm. and just started putting their hands on me and just making sure I was okay. And so, you know, I, I tell this part of the story because I think it's really important uh, when we deal with trauma once things settled down a little bit, my head was pounding, obviously, and I had to use a restroom. So there I am. I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to go use a restroom, like normal. And uh, it's crazy. Eight, eight hours I was running rampant, carrying bodies. Doing... So now I'm like, okay, I got to use a restroom. As I go out into this hallway, it's pretty quiet. Around comes this little SWAT guy, and he's got this giant shotgun, and he's clearing rooms. And so he steps in front of me and he goes right into the bathroom and he says, Hey, you got my six? And I'm like, yeah, what do you want me to do? I got your six. I'll stand here. Anybody comes, I'll scream or I'll, you know, go at them. And so he clears the bathroom starting to come out. And I said, sir, I said, can you get my six now? And he looks me up and down. He says, yes, sir. I I got your six. So I go in, I use the restroom and now I'm washing my hands. Right. And I'm not just washing my hands, but I'm washing my body because I want to try to get all this stuff off. You know, I can't get it off my shirt. I'm trying to like get it off, but I come out and um, he goes in to the women's. I, I got his six again. And then he takes off. It was right around then that they started to uh, clear out everybody. Like everything was starting to become more secure. So now I'm seeing officers around. I have 1% yeah. battery life on my phone. And uh, I just want to get back to my wife. Well, in that moment, I had this moment of silence where everything was quiet. I didn't hear any noise. It was just quiet. And at that point, I got really, really scared. And I'd never been that scared in my entire life. And all the emotions, I think, of what I just saw, what I witnessed, the adrenaline like wasn't there anymore, right? It just overwhelmed me. And it was only a short stint. 
because I was raised not to show emotion. Right, right. Be tough. No blood, no foul. Get up and dust yourself off. Um, and uh, But it was a moment of silence that as I've spoken to a lot of first responders, a lot of people that have dealt with traumatic events, uh, it, regardless, you don't have to be in a mass shooting to have trauma whatsoever, um, you know, uh, domestic abuse, uh, car accidents, things like that. There's always this moment of quiet time that hits you, right? Yeah. And we all share that relatable feeling. Yeah, yeah. So definitely. Where you like, and then all of a sudden sound starts to return and you almost have to repeat what the person said in your mind's eye because you realize like, oh wait, that's at me. Like, okay, what, like, let me plug back into this world and figure out what's going on. Yeah. 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 And so when I got back uh, to Dallas, obviously I was very confused. Uh, this was less than 24 hours uh, later. And I got a call from a, a friend of my dad's. He's a former uh, combat vet and says, hey, I've got a relatable story. I know where you're at mentally. This is what's going to happen to you in the next 72 hours. And he gave me somewhat of a survival guide. And had he not been courageous enough to tell me his story and be vulnerable in that state, where I was super vulnerable and approachable in my state, I don't know what I would have done. I probably would have tried to figure it out on my own. And who knows if I would have been approachable to anybody else. But he commanded the moment right there with, with his presence and what he had done, and it was relatable to me. And so I opened up my heart and my mind to anyone that was willing to share. And so I had a lot of, you know, I was truly blessed because I had first responders, uh, people that had, had been through traumatic events, reaching out to me, giving their guidance on what they did, their next steps, what I needed to do to help myself. I tried battling it for uh, a long time, had the headaches, had the nightmares. Um, I ended up ripping my shoulder out. I had major reconstructive surgery because oh, wow. I was pulling. Uh, I had two, her two big hernias on my right side and my hip still jacked up uh, my knee, but, um, you know, you go through it. So I went through EMDR therapy. Uh, EMDR therapy was amazing. Was uh, it? Like, I, I mean, I've heard about amazing. it and it's that rapid eye movement, right? Correct. Yep. And so when somebody did it, did you have to recall the memory and then do the rapid eye movement to help with it? Or did you not even have to recall the memory and just do rapid eye movement? So what I did, I there's several forms of it. Uh, there's the eye movement piece. There's the audio. Um, so there's the visual. There's the audio. Uh, I did a vibration where I held like two river rock little paddles. Yep. And it would vibrate, go left and right, left and right. And the whole idea is that it it makes your brain kind of bounce, like play tennis with each other and uh, from one side to the other. And the therapist had control of the vibration level. So really? what... Okay. What she had me do was she had me basically tell my story of the start to the finish, which was when you go through traumatic event, you can't recount everything because your right. mind's like, all right, there's some Shatters stuff everywhere, right? Like there's just bits yep. and pieces that get filed away. A hundred percent. Yeah. And you're all over the place. And so what, what it did was it allowed me to start talking about the very beginning and what I felt everything from the, the temperature outside to the wind to who was around me. And then as I would start to get into some of the more terrifying pieces of it, she would increase the volume of the vibration. 
And then we would stop and we would do talkative therapy around that moment. And so the whole idea was to try to take one minute at a time and process that one minute and put it into a box and put it into some sort of chronological order on a shelf, right? And so that's where I we just kind of had this vision of these boxes being laid out. And finally, I was able to get my story for the most part from start to end on where I was at that moment. And then during that time, there were a lot of survivors that were reaching out trying to find the person that carried them out, their hero. Right. Right. And so I was getting a lot of contacts in that regard. And I would ask them, like, what did you see me do? I, I, I remember your face. I remember your, 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 where you were hit. I remember that. I remember where you were at. But what did you see me do? And so they would tell me what they saw or their friends would tell me. And, you know, that was hard in itself because you find out that, you know, one woman that you thought lived didn't. Mm. Um, not the one that I had carried out, but another, um, you find out that through a story, a, a horrible, horrible situation that happened to another female, you apologize to the friend and then she turns around and says, no, she's alive. She lived. She, mm. and I just, I literally just found out that that woman's still living, which oh, is wow. amazing. She's gone through all kinds of surgeries and everything. Um, so there's those like uplifting moments, but EMDR therapy really helped me remember uh, and process. And it allowed me to, to cry about it. And through this whole experience, I've learned to become more vulnerable, more approachable. Uh, I'm a huge advocate of communication and just talking about our, our fears that we have, our trauma, our depression, our sadness. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm one of the toughest SOBs you're probably going to meet. I did what most people don't. I can check my tough box off. Yes. I'm still going to cry. And I'm still going to tell you my my hardest, most like crazy memory that pulls me down every single day because I want you to share yours. And the more that we talk about it, the more we're, we're going to gain trust, communication. There's going to be more love in this world and everything else. So um, just, it's really turned my life around. I'm a big, like I said, I, you know, I, I don't think I was alone that night. Mm -hmm. I've had, I had a crazy dream when I got back. Uh, I was telling Steve about it, you know, where I was running through the venue and uh, bullets were spraying on my left and right. And I'm, this was, you know, I'm in my bed and I can smell it and I can hear the mm -hmm. screams and I'm going for a man that's crying out for help. And I come up on a pole because I can't go anywhere because the bullets are to my left and right. And a white light comes sweeping out from my right side and unfolds its wings about 10 feet off the ground in front of me. And now the bullets are spraying off the backside of him. And it was an angel. And now he's backing up so I can get out and go pick up this man and run him out. And as I'm running and I'm getting to the gate and I can see the gate and it's opening, and I could see everybody. I look off to my right, and that angel's right above me. And you can hear the bullets shattering off of, off of his wing. I was not alone. There's no way. I'm 6'5", pushing three bills. I'm a big guy, um, a big target, you know. And, uh, and so I, I think I was there in the right moment, in the right place, uh, at the right time. So 
Wow. Crazy. It is crazy. How long have you been back to Vegas at all? You know, nobody's asked me that. Uh, yes, we went back a couple years ago. So what Vegas did, they, they had this uh, called Healing Garden, where they, uh, they memorialized basically all the victims, the 58 that fell that night. You know, and, and family got a chance to come and put pictures down and really humanize the, the cross, the, the memorial, right? So my wife and I went back and we were there by ourselves and there wasn't anybody in the, in the garden at the time. And so we start up this walkway and seeing one after another. And then I come across one of the women that passed away in my arms. And uh, that was really hard because um, she wasn't just someone that I had carried out at that time. You know, it was, she had a life and she was a softball player and she did all these things, you know, and she had family. And, uh, I just, you know, I, I made, I did this interview, um, with major league baseball on their MLB network. And my biggest message was that like to all the families that, that had loved ones that were lost, you know, there was so much love trying to get them out and, and get them to a place of safety and not just die alone and uh walking through that garden it was it was really really hard um i can't say that it was healing but it uh it put a it put a put a life to that face you know what i mean and um so we did go back uh i haven't been back since i i'm supposed to go back for a work thing in december so i'm like well as long as i'm on that side of the strip we're good, but yeah. So Yeah, no, I was in a horrific car crash and I have to go past that spot, like just not very often, right? But anytime I go past that spot, it's hard. It's hard for me to, get, to just be in. Like it just, my, I, I, it's hard for me to do deep breaths. Like even when I'm intentional about trying to do deep breaths, like I just get shallow and I get tense. And even after the accident for a while, it took me, probably nine months to drive on the highway without my heart racing anytime a semi passed me because I collided with a semi. So that was just, like it, it didn't, I mean, I could be totally fine driving and that semi would be like on that side and it, it, my heart would be in my throat. And just interesting how that body just remembers, right? It just keeps score at some level. Never forgets, unfortunately, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, did you force yourself to get back on there or was it, did you feel like, okay, I'm in the right moment. I can try to get on now. So I remember the car being, I remember that I got in the accident and I called the insurance company. And I'm like, my car's totaled. They're like, well, we can't say it's totaled until we see it. I'm like, okay, well, I promise you it's totaled. So <laughs> I went down to the dealership and I'm glad a friend forced me to do this. I went down to the dealership and they had a car, like, you know, the universe always has your back. They had a car that a guy built for his wife that she didn't like the color or something. And I was building a new car. It was the first time I was building a car ever. I was waiting for it to come in. And this car that he built was like three things different than the car that I built. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, perfect. I'm buying mm -hmm. it. So I bought it. I got into the car and I was like, oh, I have to drive it. 
Oh, no. Wow. Right? And so I'm sitting there in the parking lot of the dealership for probably 45 minutes doing that pep talk to myself. Like, if I do not drive now, it's only going to get harder because I took an Uber down to the dealership. And so I got in the car. I finally pulled out onto the road. I cried and white knuckled the entire way home. I I could like anytime a semi got in my lane uh, or near me, I like went into the farthest lane possible to get away from it. I made it home. And I just remember being like, it's only going to get better. Like it's only going to get better. And it took, like I was fine on main roads, but when I got into the highway, that's where it triggered me. And then the crazy thing is, is like the reason why I went to the reason why I got in the accident in the first place is because I lost my driver's license. Well, a few months ago this year, my driver's license got lost and the Delta airplane and some lady emails me and she's like, oh, I found your license. I gave it to the flight attendant, but Delta never found it. No one ever turned it in, whatever. I'm like, I wish you would have mailed it to me. So I'm like, oh my gosh, I have to go to the DMV to go get another license. And the last time I did this, I almost died. And so I was like, I'm like, mate, I've tried. I'm like, what am I going to, it was just like all those, like all that stuff came back again. And it's been five years almost. And, um, I made two friends go with me. I'm like, I can't do this drive by myself. Like, I just can't, I don't want to do it. I need whatever. And it was an entirely different experience. Like, obviously I didn't get in a wreck. It was all fine, but it's just, you, you know, you just have to listen to what you need and just be honest with that and ask for it and just try your best. Right. Yeah. No. Did you ever go through therapy or anything when you did that? I did go through. So I had a therapist before, so we did talk through it all. The very unique thing about my accident was I didn't leave my body. Mm. Like I, like I saw the car hit the semi, or the semi hit the car. I don't even know. It was so perfect that I don't know if one did more than the other. Does that make sense? It was like yeah. whatever, and. I watched it and I remember thinking, I'm not going to die. I, like I knew that instantly and I knew like I need to surrender to survive. Because if I try to resist or try to overpower this car, I'm dead. The only yeah. way that I'm going to survive is if I let go and roll with the car. And I remember going, okay, hands mm-hmm. on the steering wheel, head on the headrest. I have enough momentum. I'm going to go once. I have enough momentum on a girl twice. I'm like, oh yeah, we're going to roll three times. And after that third time, I'm like, okay, now we're losing momentum and I'm going to start rolling sideways. So I started rolling sideways. The car ended up upside down in the median. And I remember thinking, okay, now I'm going to get hit, right? Like Hollywood has trained me that another car is coming. And instead an individual was running towards the vehicle and they were yelling like, are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? And I could hear it, but I wasn't processing it. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I heard sounds, but I wasn't really paying attention. Were those my sounds or somebody else's sounds or whatever? And then that person pulled back the windshield and we caught eyes. And he goes, Are you okay? And I remember looking at him thinking, based on his facial expression, I'm not okay. Mm-hmm. And I didn't dare look. I like I did not want to look at my body. So I closed my eyes mm-hmm. and I wiggled my fingers and toes. And I'm like, I can feel my fingers and toes. I can feel my fingers and toes. And he goes, you're going to be okay. It was just the most bizarre thing, right? It was just like that. And then after that, like I came, I went to the hospital. They cleared me. I came home. I looked at my kids and it's, you feel like such a witness to everything, 
right? Mm-hmm. Like you're like, you look at your kids and you're like, man, I almost never saw you again. Yeah. Right. Like I almost never had these, ex- like every moment was magical. I used to be that person that at Christmas, so this accident happened on December 18 of 2018. Mm-hmm. And I remember on Christmas, like I was the person that would have the garbage bag. I have seven kids. Like they can open presents and it can look like a dumpster in two seconds that would be picking up all the wrappings like right away and all that kind of stuff. And I just remember just watching like little fingers peel back paper and throw mm-hmm. and the excitement and just the magic of life. Yeah, I can relate to that 100%. I, I would, that year after it was like, the butterflies, the butterflies got me like just the, the, we, you know, here in Texas, you know, we'd have sometimes those big monarch butterflies would fly through or like these, just the, the, the visual of it, right. Every moment was just so magical. You just hit it on the head. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would go for a walk and I'd be like excited about a rock being in a certain place. I'm like, (laughs) what a cool place to park yourself. Like I would, if I was a rock, I'd want to be in that spot too. And I'm like, what am I even saying? But like every single thing, when you saw a weed growing through concrete, you're like, you brave little soul. Like it was just (laughs) so fascinating the experience, but it's the reality of it. And I wish at some level we could stay in that space forever. Mm -hmm. I can touch it, but I don't live it. Yeah. 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 It's crazy. Yeah. Crazy. I, I, I feel like, um, every day, every day, you know, I, I say a prayer for our, our world and just, you know, that all this craziness stops and, uh, just that we have more peace and, and just harmony and what we do. Um, we just treat people with more kindness, you know, and, and, uh, and spread more love around everything. And, but every day I feel connected. You know, every day I, I, I just feel it. And maybe I have this 13 seconds of time that hits me and kind of refocuses everything on, on what life is really all about. Unfortunately, I have that 13 second memory um, that I think about. It can't get worse than that. So the dramatization of what we put ourselves through in life, how I treat people with respect and kindness, it goes a long way. And yeah. um, so yeah, I think, you know, sometimes God puts you in, in crazy situations like he did with you to come out and tell the story and maybe appreciate life a little bit more, you know, yeah. where you're at. So definitely. I, before the accident, I lived by so afraid of like what people would think and am I being a good, like all the perceptions of other people. And then after that accident, it was you can have your opinion. It's none of my business. (laughs) My job right now is like life is a gift and my gift back is living it. So I'm just going to start doing crazy things per your perception. And I'm okay with it because my time is going to be up someday and I don't get to choose when that is, but I sure get to choose how I do this day. And so that's where I'm going to put my energy. Uh, That's a great, great line right there. Yeah. I hear you. It's cool. All right, Todd. So you do speeches. Obviously, you have a huge story and a huge heart to motivate others. How do people find you, reach out to you, and connect? I appreciate that. So toddbly11.com. So it's my name, uh, B-L-Y-L-E-V-E-N, toddbly11.com. That's my speaking platform. Um, I've really resonated with uh, businesses, 
sports organizations, athletic departments, first responder organizations, and, uh, and, and groups, along with churches. Uh, so I, that's who I've been really kind of uh, more uh, comfortable with in telling my story, and it's really yeah. resonating. I own a sports technology company as well. Uh, called the Scout Hub at thescouthub.com, where that's my work stuff that I really love, yeah. uh, building technology. And then I'm writing a book. Uh, so I'm about 170 pages in right now of a life story. Uh, there's talk of it being a movie um, one day. And uh, I wrote a country song, which is oh. getting, we're getting wow. ready to record it. So pretty crazy. Yeah. I love it. Thanks. It's so fun. Yeah. Good, yeah. good, good. All right, everybody, you heard where to find him, how to connect his target audience, the things he's into. Todd, thank you so much for being here today and sharing your story. We all left inspired. Well, thank you for having me. And thank you for sharing yours too. Uh, it, it's such a learning lesson for anyone. So I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you.